person who was working weeks, perhaps even months prior to the invasion to protect the museum? Yeah, the, um, in one of the articles I wrote, uh, um, and I think it's the article that comes out uh, in the German publication later this year on uh, the uh, on the legacies of the libraries. Um, many people took precautions without or with the permission of the then uh, Minister of uh, Culture or the head of the SBAH. And that works very well. Uh, and actually, they, they got to the experience uh, uh, from the first um, Iraq war, if you want, and especially the, the Iran-Iraq war in the 90s, when especially in the South, uh, many museums uh, um, were looted. And they knew that uh, if the Americans would come and everybody was convinced that they would, um, their collections would be threatened. So, uh, for example, the House of Manuscripts uh, hit their collections, uh, um, and it actually was at that time an institution that took on a lot of uh, manuscripts. And actually, there was a program going on uh, to um, safeguard the manuscripts which they took out of uh, other museums uh, from the country. So they, they concentrated uh, many manuscripts uh, in that particular uh, library um, to digitize them, etc. So they had a big program going on. Um, so um, they took very well precautions. Uh, they um, had a bomb shelter uh, somewhere in the city and thousands of manuscripts uh, were uh, put in aluminum boxes uh, and put in this bunker. Now, that bunker was guarded and especially uh, with the help of the community. At one time, a military convoy uh, went out and uh, stopped at the bunker and wanted to see what was going in. And the people protected it. And they said, you cannot come in. And they forced their way in. And then um, what happened? Uh, then there was sort of a riot. You know, people assembling, 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 and scolded at the uh, uh, US military because they already put up uh, uh, quite a few uh, um, uh, aluminum trunks with the manuscripts uh, in the pickup truck. Uh, so they felt so threatened that they returned it back to the um, uh, to the bunker and left. So that was a very good uh, uh, action. In terms of looting, um, I mean, you worked in a period where there was um, illicit um, looting of um, cultural or archaeological sites. Yes. Um, were there any measures regarding the protection of those sites? Yeah, definitely. Uh, John Russell organized via a UN program, I think, in cooperation with the Japanese authorities, I think uh, 25 or 24 pickup trucks, Toyota, of course. Uh, when they arrived, they, they arrived already when uh, I came to Baghdad, uh, but they were holed up at the airport. So, um, the, uh, the certain police people from the Ministry of uh, Culture, they had their own uh, sort of police force. Actually, the general, the commander of that particular police force was corrupt, we knew afterwards. Uh, anyway, they went uh, to the airport to pick up the, the trucks with all the drivers, uh, like the inspectors came from the, from the provinces uh, to pick up the trucks. And uh, the Americans didn't allow them. So I got a call 
and I said, okay. And again, um, I sent out a patrol, um, an American uh, patrol, and I told them uh, to get into the airport and to facilitate uh, the people from the uh, ministry uh, to pick up the tricks, the, the, the trucks, which they uh, were rightly uh, theirs. And that happened. So the role of a cultural advisor was much more than just protection of, of uh, cultural heritage or culture in general. It was more facilitating uh, the Ministry of Culture, uh, uh, the SBAH, the Antiquities uh, Department, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this worked. Then again, the story didn't end because there were not 24 pickup trucks uh, at the airport. Uh, two or three were stolen, and some of them uh, didn't have their ignition keys. Um, so anyway, the patrol went back with uh, in the slipstream uh, the recovered uh, pickup trucks. And on their way, um, actually, they were robbed. The one, one inspector uh, was forced, uh, or I think he went to the bathroom somewhere near a, a gas station. And then he was forced uh, to uh, give his keys uh, to some hoodlums. And they went off with the truck. Uh, so that was very, yeah. Well, you know, that's a war zone. That, uh, those things happen. But the story didn't end there. So uh, about 20 trucks. Um, were parked at the um, uh, at the uh, National Museum, and the inspectors were called uh, to pick up their trucks. Then, after a couple of weeks, one truck—I'm not quite for, uh, from what province—was returned with the uh, inspector saying, "I don't want this truck because it's too new." And everybody uh, would see that I am cooperating with the Americans. So then I got angry and I went over there. And uh, I told Donnie and I told the uh, particular inspector, uh, be creative. Do you want me to take a sledgehammer and to put some bumps in the car and uh, uh, scrape off the paint? Uh, what is this? Uh, then everybody started to laugh. And uh, I think this uh, inspector went back with a, a sort of a crooked new truck. <laughs> These things happen. I mean, you have to be creative. It's a war zone. Yeah. Uh, but that particular inspector was right, <clears throat> because when I first arrived at the um, National Library, uh, the general director, uh, Assad, uh, got angry because I came with a uh, US military uh, patrol. And he said, don't come back here, not with a US military control. Everybody will see that I'm cooperating with the Americans. I said, I was shocked and uh, uh, naive, apparently, too. And I knew he was right. So the next time I went, they sent out uh, a patrol to pick me up. And the patrol was uh, with Kurdish uh, fighters that protected uh, the, uh, uh, the National Library as well. Now, I fully trusted the Kurdish guards because they had the best intelligence uh, uh, ever in, in uh, Baghdad. And they were good fighters. So, but at one time, uh, I think of returning from the museum to uh, the green zone, to the embassy. Um, there was this policeman um, sort of regulating the traffic. And he looked at me. Uh, and I was always close in civilian. So I never wore or hardly ever wore my uh, military uniform, which is to be discussed. But that's another story, which can be discussed. Um, but I also, uh, oh, you know, I had an, uh, a gun, a pistol. And uh, I've just put it in my jacket. 
And this policeman looked at me and I thought, this is going wrong. Because there were always snipers uh, on the top of the roofs that uh, would take you out. So I took out my gun, I looked at him and pointed my gun to him. And he looked at me and actually he was, was trying to, to make a phone call. He, put a, he pulled out his telephone and I didn't do anything. I just looked at him, stared him in the eyes. And then he put his uh, telephone away. Um, and the Americans told me to shoot through the window of the car. Uh, so I would have. Uh, because it was he or me. Very simple. And I'm glad I didn't because I probably would never forgive myself to have killed a person, whoever that might be. Uh, but it was at that time, it was he or me. Then I told the driver uh, to continue and not speed up, especially not speed up and take the first uh, left, which he did. And that's how I got out of there. This, you know, is part of the deal. Another uh, 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 sort of similar story is, like I told you earlier, uh, there was a prize on my head. And at one time I was uh, going to the Ministry of uh, Culture and the, the guards were South African. I think they were from Dynacor. Uh, they didn't know that I was Dutch, and that I uh, could understand them because the South African uh, language has its origins in, in Dutch. And um, they told uh, to each other, I, I heard them over the, uh, uh, over the walkie-talkies, over the communication lines that we were followed. And um, that was sort of scary. Uh, but there was a helicopter for us too. So they were following us from the air. And then we suddenly took a left turn. And then apparently um, we were not followed anymore. But that was scary. Uh, because, you, you know, you, there could be uh, some people waiting for you, which actually happened to a colleague of mine. I shared my room with a senior uh, advisor for the Ministry of uh, Higher Education. And he was killed uh, in the streets. Uh, he did not, well, as we would say in anthropology, he went native. He thought he was invincible and that he was in very good, uh, very good, good relations uh, with the minister and his staff. But he was betrayed and they just executed him. Uh, but he never went out with a uh, patrol. And I told him, you know, it's very dangerous. Uh, it's, it's a war zone out there. Uh, the insurgents are uh, getting more powerful and powerful. He didn't listen and uh, he got killed. I mean, you say it's a war zone and it was a war zone, but there were, as you said, there were targeted assassinations and attacks. Mm -hmm. So they knew who people were as in they as in the insurgents generally speaking how do you know there was a price um a price on your head or a, a price the military told me and how did they know i mean did they did they find lists were there lists that were there, there were lists yeah mm. yeah and you okay. know that uh, the entrance uh, to the green zone um or the exits what you uh, whatever you want uh were guarded by by spies if you want yeah Another story is just to show the listeners that it's not only about 
protection heritage is that I got offered uh, two tigers at one time. This was before Christmas by an uh, US colonel. And I thought, what on earth am I going to do with two tigers? So, you know, as a military, you were taught that everything that is normal in, in a peaceful uh, society is abnormal in a war zone. And what is normal in a war zone is abnormal in a peaceful society. So you get, you know, you get the craziest things. Uh, um, so people were aggressive, uh, the staff, for example, and especially uh, the uh, private security guards. They felt themselves like they were gods on earth. Very dangerous, very dangerous. Well, anyway, I got two tigers and uh, I was in a sort of funny mood because, you know, you work, let's say, 18 hours a day, very stressful. And um, so I said, you know, are you going home for Christmas? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, do you got any children? He said, yeah, I got two boys. And I said, well, I got the perfect Christmas present for you. You know, you got two tigers. <laughs> he didn't like that and left the room insulted. Then I went over to the minister and told him the story. And he said, Rene, you can't do that. Uh, I agree with you that uh, we could not accept the tigers uh, for the uh, Baghdad Zoo, but you have to be a little bit more careful and polite, which, of course, he was right. Uh, but I figured already, you know, uh, if we would accept the um, tigers, it, uh, every tiger takes about, I think, if I remember correctly, 24 uh, kilos of meat a day. And there were people starving out there. Uh, so, you know, how are you going to do it? There was another point somebody else uh, told me that maybe I was wrong too, because it was very important uh, to reestablish normal life, uh, to repair uh, playgrounds for the children and maybe to open museums and libraries, etc. cetera. Uh, then I thought, yes, that, that's a good point. Next time I... Uh, encounter a, a similar situation, I have to consider that. Uh, and actually, that is also what we discussed uh, with uh, Asad Alexander, uh, Eskander. Um, the point to stay and, and, and restore and repair the museum was because it was a location recognizable for all people. They knew if they wanted to go to the National Library where it was. So what he did with his staff, uh, after we established that we would stay, that the library would say in that uh, location, um, they started uh, scraping off the suit of the magazine room. So that's the, the, the first thing the uh, staff of the library did with their own hand with scrapers, because uh, uh, Asad decided that uh, the first thing to open the library anyway is to open the magazine room. Uh, so that people could come back and read the magazines. And it was a perfect decision, I think. I fully uh, supported that. Yeah. What happened to the tigers? They never arrived. They're probably still in the zoo uh, in Texas. Yeah. Hmm. So they were, they were taken away? They were, they were well, safe. they were not transported. It okay. was an offer. So, oh, okay. They were an offer. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, Another thing, which just, you know, the, the, I, I call them Indian stories in the sense of, you know, it's Wild West stories. Uh, at one time, uh, I was in a military convoy going somewhere. And 
especially the military uh, um, behave very badly. You probably have seen footage of Humphreys bumping into cars if they were in the way. Uh, they didn't care. They just went through like crazy, even against the traffic. I, I, I was in one Humphrey in a convoy and they went against the traffic and everybody was scared as hell. Uh, uh, so it's crazy. I mean, that's why I didn't like to have a military convoy because the soldiers were crazy. Um, but at one point uh, we had to stop for a traffic light, which uh, uh, the driver didn't like because you don't stop while driving inside Baghdad. At least that was the mood. And uh, there was a young boy, uh, he probably was selling newspapers, I think. And he came too close to the Humvee. And uh, the guard got out of the, the car and threatened at point blank the boy. And I got so upset that uh, I went out of the car too. And I said, uh, get into the car. And if you don't get in and leave the boy alone, I will not get into the car, which means that they could not protect me, which they are uh, by definition uh, have to do because I was a VIP. Uh, and that was what happened. So the guard went back into the car and we drove on and I went back into the car. So look, this is all crazy stories. You were, you were threatened by a, a drunken bodyguard at some point? Yeah, that's true. You couldn't trust the private guards either, especially the ones from Blackwater, uh, which is another crazy story, which I'll tell you later, of Gabe Bjorn, uh, which was attached to uh, one of the ministers, Cheney, in the Bush Kellogg administration. Brown. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You would sleep on, on, on uh, the outskirts of the embassy, let's say the gardens. Everybody thinks there was only the uh, beautiful swimming pool because that was uh, published uh, uh, very often. Uh, but little of that was true. Uh, we all were in a container. And I shared the container with an Iraqi American, which I hadn't, we had no communication whatsoever. Besides, you only went to your container to sleep and that's it. Um, and it, uh, there were two containers uh, uh, built parallel and in between they were connected by an, a so-called wet unit, a shower uh, and, and washing room and a bathroom. So you had to share that, uh, the bathroom and the shower. <clears throat> and of course, uh, uh, if you make use of that, uh, uh, you lock the door. And at one point, I think it was at night, I'm not quite sure, there was a knock on the door and I said, occupied. And they, they kept banging on the door. When I was finished, I came out and there is this guard, a uh, private security guard, probably, uh, well, definitely was, dr uh, he was on drugs. He was high and drunk. Uh, I could hear they were fooling around with girls. Um, and he threatened me and I just didn't understand what was going on. And these are big guys. And I'm, uh, I'm sort of a tiny guy. Well, not tiny, but... Uh, I'm definitely not big. Um, and uh, I thought, oh my God, this is going bad. Um, but I knew, I, I, I did some martial arts. So I knew that uh, don't enter a fight, try to uh, avoid the fight. Because if you start a fight, uh, both parties will get uh, damaged whatsoever. When, yeah. And uh, so I tried to control myself, which, which went on very well, actually. Uh, and um, I lived in America for a while, so my, my 
you know, uh, let's say my uh, um, collection of uh, scolding words uh, uh, were, were pretty much at my at my availability. Well, that's just crooked English, but you know what I mean. I could um, then uh, it became became at a point I just didn't understand what he wanted from me, and uh, I went back to my uh, you know to my part of the uh, container. And he kept following me. And at one point, he pushed me. And I flew back into the uh, container. And I thought, well, I was taught never to, first of all, never to lose your temper. And second of all, you know, try to avoid a fight. But this is the time that I have to fight back. Um, and I was just about to do that when I thought, I'll give him one more chance. Uh, so I pulled out my best American scolding uh, instruments, uh, which I will not repeat uh, here in public. Uh, but I told him that he got fired and that he was fooling around with a two-star general and that he uh, should uh, start packing uh, his stuff uh, because he would be put on the plane tomorrow. And that seemed to have worked. And he returned to his container. Then I went to the military police and these things happened often. Uh, stressful situations, people got into fights, etc. And um, um, they sort of, well, they, they believed me, but they were not about to take any action. So I told them, uh, if you don't do anything, I'll go to the ambassador and uh, we'll see. Because I'm not going to stand for this. I'm here to do my work and I don't want to be threatened uh, by any security personnel that's in the trouble uh, outside uh, the green zone. And then I uh, got my own container in a different place, all by myself, easy. And, uh, so that's what happened. Yeah. So there are all these crazy stories. I mean, if you went out at night, Thursday night was our night out. Um, uh, I befriended uh, uh, an American uh, officer. Well, actually, he was a civilian at that time. So we went out for drinks sometimes at the Thursday night. But at one point, uh, we were held up by an American patrol. And it's just like in a cowboy movie, or just like in you know an American movie. We were treated as criminals. And uh, they shouted to, to me to, uh, well, I was, yeah, I was driving to uh, cut the lights, which I did. And apparently, you were not supposed to, to drive around uh, with full lights in the, within the green zone. I didn't know. And I was scared. These guys, they don't talk. They should. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's not a, not a crazy story. Very funny. Uh, so you were not only threatened by insurgents or whatsoever, or by incoming uh, fire, which happened too. Actually, at one point, uh, I was in the bathroom, and uh, a grenade hit uh, hit the palace, and right in front uh, of my room. It exploded, and all the glass was all over the place, etc. And I was lucky I wasn't there. At another instant, two people got killed in another part of the palace uh, by incoming fire, by a grenade. So. Well, that's the situation you live in.
Just going back um, to the issue, um, the topic of Babel, Babylon. Yeah. Uh, what I forgot, yeah, that there's another thing which uh, made Babylon extremely vulnerable. And not only for, uh, because it was a regional co uh, command office, but also it was a regional office for the KBR. And I tried to find out uh, who gave that permission and I couldn't. Nobody knew why the KBR was there at the Babylon site. So KBR is the, the company, the uh, Kellogg, um, um, what are they called? The Kellogg uh, Brown and Roots, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Rumsfeld took the decision to, to uh, outsource many tasks of the, of the uh, uh, US military a very uh, liberal approach uh, and a very bad idea, actually, because, uh, you know, they have their own uh, command uh, structures, costs a lot of money anyway. Uh, security guards uh, got up to a thousand dollar a day. Uh, anyway, KBI was then for the logistics and, and uh, providing uh, the meals, etc., etc. And they built the regional uh, uh, headquarters on in the middle of the site of Babylon. Um, the first day I went to Babylon, I saw a machine bulldozer flattening uh, a piece of land in order to make it, um, uh, to, to prepare it uh, for construction. And I went over to them and said, what are you doing? Uh, you know, these big bulldozers uh, uh, moving earth in the middle of the site. And, uh, well, you've been to Babylon, so... Uh, uh, you know, the antiquities, uh, if you put your hand in the sand and, you know, it's 90%, uh, uh, you have a chance that you pick up some kind of piece of antiquities, either a stone or whatever, a brick. I looked at it and I said, well, you got to stop. Who are you to tell me? Blah, 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 blah. So uh, I looked at the political advisor of the military commander and said, he has to stop. Otherwise, you get into trouble. So they stopped. Um, I mean, they flattened huge pieces of land on, uh, in the middle on the side of Babylon. A couple of weeks later, I got threatened, actually. I got a threatening email from uh, somebody at the staff of KBR that, my, uh, that I could count my days, <laughs> that uh, it was not up to me to decide, blah, 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 blah. Um, but I, in that case, I didn't feel threatened. I didn't have any uh, follow-up. So it was not only the military command, uh, but also uh, the KBR, that perhaps, uh, if you look at it, even more damaged the site uh, than the military themselves. But there were a military contractor. So military in a, way, what? a military con contractor. So in a way, yeah. they are part of the military. I mean, they act on behalf yeah. of the military. Of course. Yeah, but and you so, could very, very difficult to control them. Mm. Because we had already troubles with the uh, uh, dual uh, command structure, on one side uh, the State Department and the other side uh, uh, the uh, uh, Ministry of Defense, the Pentagon. And now you've got another one, it's KBR. Uh, so that, yeah, it was difficult. Um, after we picked up the trucks and divided them or gave them to the uh, uh, provincial inspectors, um, I went back to uh, uh, a U.S. Uh, command post in uh, Hila, near Babylon, 
to find out how we were going to support the local inspectors because the inspector, the um, or at least the guards at the sites were threatened by heavy machinery and with heavy guns. So the point was to uh, arm the guards. That was a hard issue all over uh, Iraq because the military didn't trust the Iraqs with guns, which was funny because everybody had a gun anyway. And um, so I made sure that the, the inspectors, at least the people on the ground, the guards would have, uh, uh, could get guns. And uh, they were trained by, and I made sure that they were trained by the Americans to connect the archaeological site to a military U.S. unit that in case uh, there were trouble, they could uh, um, rely on the support of the U.S. Uh, military. Another thing what we did to uh, make that happen, to facilitate that, is we gave them radio communication. So um, somehow or whatever, I got hold of money and uh, managed uh, to get uh, every uh, provincial uh, inspector and people on the site connected to the military units in their neighborhood, in the vicinity with the radio. Uh, so there was radio communication. So we trained that too. So we went to the units and to the military units and made sure that they trusted uh, the Iraqi guards with the guns and showed them that the sites were very much threatened by people who were very well armed and came into the sites with bulldozers. And that's, you, I mean, inspectors, we are speaking about the State Board of Antiquities and Heritage. Did you offer, were you able to offer any other support to them um, in Hilla or, in, you know, the, 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 the provincial SBAH, the, provi uh, the State Board of Antiquities and Heritage office? Yeah, there's another story. I mean, for the seven months, I'm, I'm full of stories. Sometimes they're, like I said, wild death stories, and sometimes they're appropriate stories uh, on protection of heritage. Just to show, uh, uh, or just to share with the listeners uh, uh, how work uh, 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 as a cultural advisor in a war zone uh, worked at least uh, 15 years ago. Um, when I talked to the political advisor of the Polish commander in Babylon at one point, because I was negotiating with him for, for the whole group of people I represented, the Iraqi SBH, the local inspector, uh, the staff of the embassy and the military. Um, he, he, was a, he was a sneaky guy. He was a very good diplomat, but he was sneaky too. And that's part of the trade. Um, but I could stand that. Don't ask me why, uh, but it just happened. And at one point uh, during the negotiations, uh, we had to, to stay over on the side. There was a sandstorm and also the minister had to stay. So we were put in some kind of container or a house. And then he invited me to his uh, place on, uh, on the side of Babylon, and he said, I got this beautiful uh, bottle of uh, Ukrainian uh, vodka. Let's, uh, let's have a drink. And I thought, oh. So I shared one uh, drink with him, and I said, OK, we can finish the bottle later. But now let's uh, start negotiating, uh, because I suspected he wanted to get me drunk. And so then during the negotiations, uh, he was trying to push me in a corner and said, 
um, well, you know, if you uh, uh, if the the Iraqis uh, and if you don't want uh, want to do what I uh, what what we on the Polish side um, suggest in the handover of the site, I can always go to the uh, provincial governor and the head of police in Hila because they want the control of the site. And I said, oh yeah, no problem, do that. And uh, I was sent in the military to return the site uh, to the uh, SBAH. Uh, and we'll see what happens. Uh, so there was, there was a fight and that continued for years afterwards who had the control of uh, over the site of Babylon, whether it was uh, the, the provincial authorities uh, with backup of the local police or it was the SBAH. So you were confronted with that uh, uh, competition as well. Uh, in the end, uh, the negotiations went very well and the site was returned uh, by the uh, military, uh, actually on December 28 or something like that to the SBAH. Uh, so the national authorities. Where did the the military relocate to? Uh, Aldebania. Oh, and they just set up the same thing in yeah. Diwania. They just moved yeah. everything there. But you were asking me before, uh, but I could then have uh, could have done more. Of course, in every respect, I could have done more. And I have to say, sometimes I took the wrong decisions. Of course. Uh, I'm not the Pope, uh, and, uh, but you learn a lot by experience. Now, did I go to Iraq, to Baghdad uh, to get nice experiences? Of course not. My main uh, motivation uh, was to go and support the Iraqis, not the Americans, the Iraqis. And I was convinced that uh, with my knowledge and experience, um, I could uh, support the protection of uh, Iraqi heritage and support my colleagues uh, that were in uh, great need because everybody felt left out by the international heritage community. There were many articles. Uh, there was uh, uh, a lot of statements from UNESCO, ECOMOS, ECOM, but nobody was actually doing something. That was my main point. Go there and see what you can do a very practical approach. And actually, I still find that. And still in my work with Heritage for Peace, we try to be very practical and get away from, uh, from our desks in our beautiful countries, wherever we reside uh, outside the conflict zone. Uh, of course, you need technical knowledge. You need theoretical knowledge. But to put it into practice is a different story. For example, recently I was invited uh, for the third or fourth time to go to the UAE, to the United Arab Emirates, uh, for an evaluation. And uh, I decided already that uh, I will not go back to the United Arab Emirates uh, because it's just, I, I don't agree with the regime and uh, with the, the, the human rights, especially for the 80% non-Emiratis uh, 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 living in that country and uh, that are being abused. Uh, but this was going to be uh, a digital evaluation. So I returned that mail and I told them I will never do that because the paper reality does not reflect the reality on the ground. And that's what I've always done. 
uh, you have to go over there. At one point, an, uh, an architect, uh, Bureau of Architect, an officer invited me to, uh, um, to uh, tender with them on a new museum in Najaf. And I thought, hmm, okay. I said, when are we going over there? We are not. And I said, well, thank you very much. Goodbye. Uh, so for me, the, the foot on the ground to be there, uh, to see what's going on, to ask the people what they want. That's another important thing. Uh, I mean, what I want is, you know, it's not important, really. Uh, what I can do, uh, um, tell them I cannot fulfill their demands or their needs. Transparency is very, uh, very important in this kind of work. So if they want a Mercedes, I will tell them, uh, no, I will not do that. Uh, but maybe you can find somewhere else. And I will tell them why I think it's not necessary, first of all. And then secondly, I will tell them uh, why I will not support that. Uh, for example, um, I got contacted while in, while in Baghdad uh, by an uh, Italian professor. Uh, um, she wanted to digitize her collections. So I had to be in Rome anyway. So on my way uh, to the, the Netherlands uh, for my Christmas leave, I made a stopover in Lome. I met her for lunch and I asked her, uh, you know, what she wanted. And she said, well, you know, I'm a professor in archaeology and actually, actually uh, the Middle East and cuneiform, and blah, blah, blah. And I want to digitize my collection. I said, why? Well, it's important, uh, etc. I said, well, why do you think it's important? For whom? And she said, well, you know, uh, I have 30, 40 years of work there and uh, it's important for, the, uh, uh, for research and stuff like that. I said, okay, well, why should I pay for it? Um, I think the priorities uh, are different uh, in Iraq than just digitizing your uh, collection. And then my next question was, how are you going to do, how, how are you going to digitize your collection? And she said, well, you know, uh, that's why I need you, uh, uh, you know, for conservators or for digitizing, for people who know how to digitize the collections. I said, are you going to uh, invite any Iraqis uh, for it? No, 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 they're too stupid. I said, thank you very much for lunch, goodbye. That happens often. There were many projects also in the United States, for example, digitizing cuneiform collections at Stanford University, if I remember correctly. It had nothing to do with the problems uh, our colleagues in Iraq were facing. So whether you should call these kind of things as um, taking an opportunity, making use of it, or abuse, I'll leave that up to the listener. Uh, in my opinion, I think uh, it would be very close to abuse. I guess, I guess you were powerless. I mean, people were feeling powerless. Um, yeah, true. But you have to forget, uh, you shouldn't forget um, that there was a lot of infighting in, uh, uh, between the people in power in Iraq. And we have seen that in later government and actually still today. Uh, that didn't make it very easy. For example, uh, the Minister of Culture had a background uh, uh, as a Kurdish fighter. He was not Kurdish, actually, he was Shia. Uh, uh, and he was a member of the Communist Party. Uh, so that marks 
already his position within the government. And uh, so I had to deal with all these kind of factions, if you want, uh, which I was not that very much aware of at the time, only later, really. Uh, but that's, you know, the way the situation was, and to some extent still is, actually. Um, for example, it's another, another story. Uh, there was a program, an EU program, uh, to fill up the libraries uh, with new books. And we know that the universities, uh, library, university libraries all over the country suffered very much. A lot was stolen, a lot was uh, lost in fires, etc. So it was very important to, to reorganize, or at least to, to yeah, reorganize the libraries, or to put back the libraries on their feet, so uh, higher education, but also school libraries for lower education uh, could continue in the country uh, and go back to normalcy, whatever that is. Um, so I went over to the minister and I said, look, um, uh, I think I could pull off to uh, get you uh, $1 million to fill up uh, the libraries again with an uh, EU project. And he said, oh, that's a great idea, Rene. He said, well, you know, I've got some friends in Egypt and uh, I'm sure I can get a good deal. And I said, look, and I experienced that earlier. Um, this is a West, this is, you know, this is the West. And if you want to make use of this program, you have to do it the Western way, whether you like it or not. So I need bills. And I also need somebody who could run the program. Uh, and he said, no, 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 you know, it goes, it goes differently here in the Middle East, Renee. I said, yeah, I know, but uh, that's not good enough for me. I have to be sure that I get bills so uh, I can, you know, respond uh, financially uh, uh, I can be responsible for the finances uh, for this uh, project to the EU they're very strict he said no 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 that's not gonna happen I said well tamam khalas finished next project yeah these are the things you encounter so you go from one problem to the other from one suggestion to the other you know 14 16 18 hours a day you get a call from a helicopter, US military. <clears throat> uh, are you a cultural advisor? Yes, sir, I am. Uh, I'm flying here uh, in the vicinity of the uh, Ministry of Culture and there's a riot going on, but I'm not quite sure whether it's a riot or not. And we are about to break up the riot. I heard already, shoot the hell out of them, which happened before, I, you know, I, have, I actually have footage on that. And um, so I said, hold your horses, hold your horses. Call me back in 15 minutes. Can you do that? Yes, sir, we can. <coughs> so I asked my uh, secretary, what's going on? At, uh, call the ministry and find out what's going on. And uh, go ask around. She was a Christian. Uh, she was Christian, my secretary. Whether it's a Sunni or a Shia holiday or whatever, a national holiday, I need to know within 10 minutes. So she ran around the embassy, came up with a Shia holiday. And that's what they're celebrating. The, the people at the ministry didn't know. So I called back the, uh, uh, the commander of the helicopter and I said, hold your horses, this is a Shia holiday, leave them alone. This is just a religious expression. Thank you very much, sir, we'll fly on. It's mm. life, did it's you, life in Baghdad. Yeah, did you, did you have a remit over the Kurdistan region of Iraq? I mean, was it just the rest of the country? No. Later on, I went to Erbil to, to, uh, to be the only foreigner at the cultural festival. 
Uh, but that was after my uh, my tour in uh, Baghdad. But it was a funny meeting, actually. I was the only foreigner. And uh, I met the, the advisor of the ministry, forgot his name. I'm ashamed that I forgot his name, the one who got killed. I was very good friends with him. And um, the funny thing was that there were a lot of expats there, you know, Iraqi artists living in the Netherlands, the UK, uh, France, etc. And also uh, people, uh, local artists. And you saw the split in, and there was a discussion between them uh, because the expats were criticizing uh, the, the people, their colleagues that stayed as being conservative, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a very strange discussion, I thought. Uh, but that's what you often encounter. The people who leave the country have a certain, uh, uh, a certain look, a certain belief of what the, the, or a certain look of the country they left. But the country they left years ago, of course, is not the same country where they returned to. This is the problem of uh, immigrants. Uh, so you had this uh, discussion, and I didn't like the discussion. It, at one particular time, it went even ugly. So I asked around a little bit and talked to the expats, especially the ones uh, living in Paris, London, and uh, Amsterdam. And I told them that this was my observation. The last thing I wanted to say is that to have power, so much power, that you even uh, uh, were part of uh, setting up the summertime in Iraq, that together with, then, uh, with the deputy minister, you decided on a women's day supported by the German embassy. Um, that power corrupts. And I'm not Iraqi. Uh, I'm from a totally different world. Uh, and even when doing the discussions about the Jewish archives and other matters, uh, Saad Askander wanted me to go to the United States uh, to uh, represent uh, Iraq. And so I'm not going to do that. I do not represent Iraq. I'm a Dutch guy. I'm here to facilitate. And I'm not representing Iraq. And the minister fully agreed. He got angry too. And besides that, I think as a uh, director general of the uh, National Library and Archives, it's your uh, task to represent Iraq in the sense of libraries and not me. So I made clear to everybody that I was there to facilitate and to um, help them out, whatever I could do. Uh, and sometimes it was shocking to see that how much power you have. So it was good to, to leave Iraq after uh, seven months. Like I said, I was close to PTSS, post-trauma, so, uh, syndrome and I was struggling with all the power I had. I got offered uh, an extension actually, um, which I was not quite sure to accept it or not. And I must admit there was a lot of money involved. Uh, I discussed it with my wife and you know we decided uh, I'm not uh, gonna continue. Besides that, the offer was withdrawn anyway. So it was time uh, to uh, to go home and to leave my friends and colleagues uh, in still a deplorable situation, which hurts. Uh, but for me, it was the end. And an experience like that never leaves you. People get killed. People you know got killed. Uh, 
in the media, you're you're a very at one point a very favorite subject, which I didn't like at certain points anymore. It should be the Iraqis uh, uh, the media should be talking to, and not me. Uh, but the danger, the 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 bad and the good, the positive and the negative, it will never leave uh, leave you. Anybody who has been in a war zone, it will leave scratches on your heart and your mind. In terms of um, post-trauma, post-traumatic stress, uh, I mean, uh, how have you been able to address that over the past few years? I cried a week when I returned from Baghdad to the Netherlands. Um, we were uh, we moved before I went to Iraq. And I left my wife uh, with a house full of nothing. <laughs> it was uh, restored for about half a year and everything was bare. And during Christmas, I was so hyper that my friends who organized a dinner for me didn't recognize me. And then I thought, hmm, I have to take it easy, which I did actually after I returned to Baghdad. Uh, I made sure that uh, I got more sleep and tried not to be so hyperactive. Uh, and I had to come down from the position of a powerful position and everybody was asking me and give me all the full attention to become a normal, uh, a normal citizen again. That takes a while. Uh, we had some heavy talks with my wife to come down from from you know that position that not everything in the world is turning up uh, you know, is about me but that didn't last that long um, there were possibilities of uh, getting a psychological uh, support from the army but i thought i never really needed that and it did i didn't sort of faded away but especially when uh, this good friend of mine, the advisor of the minister, got killed uh, two or three years later. Uh, I started crying again all day. So, still now, in this podcast, some emotions come up and tears fill my eyes. It never leaves you. But of course, you weren't alone. I mean, this is in many ways a common experience um, for a lot of people who go to Iraq or are from Iraq who suffer um, or ha are still suffering um, for the fact that there's been so much instability and so many dreadful detrimental effects uh, uh, of the US occupation and instability in general and the legacies of dictatorship. I mean, it's, there's a lot to deal with. Um, True. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I mean, I guess when you were there um, or anyone who's actually in Iraq, Iraq proper, um, is actually suffering significantly from, you know, from, from, from legacy, a legacy of, of, of events. No, True. 
And I don't want to get into a competition of uh, who got the most uh, grief. Uh, I told you the story mm. the way I experienced it. Uh, it does have some certain advantages on the international stage. People believe me. I wanted to fuse people uh, who went into a war zone to protect cultural heritage. So mm. it definitely adds to my credibility. Uh, on the other hand, uh, for myself, I've learned, of course, a lot. Uh, although my experiences are confined to uh, seven months Iraq and uh, six months Afghanistan, uh, being in a war zone, um, I perhaps have a little bit more feeling than others on how it is to to work and to judge projects that I found uh, sometimes totally ridiculous and totally not in place because uh, it's very not very practical. It's designed behind the desk. It has nothing to do with the real situation on the ground. I mean, so many people uh, do not know how difficult it is to send goods, for example, to Iraq or Syria or Yemen, or to transfer money. Now, the recent projects the Heritage for Peace had in Iraq with a lot of problems sending the money. Uh, we found a solution, and uh, so it did work. Uh, so, you know, even if you have money, but, uh, it's still difficult. And a lot of people don't realize it. A lot of people, especially the funding agencies, want to have a total control over the projects and uh, do not trust the people on the ground and do not give them enough uh, responsibilities. It has to change. And there's a big discussion uh, on that uh, issue uh, within the humanitarian and, uh, and uh, emergency aid and also for the uh, relevant for the heritage projects, for, uh, helping our colleagues in boy zones or other fragile uh, states. Uh, so you learn and you use that experience, hopefully for the better, and I think I do, uh, for other projects. To be, you know, even, even one project we did in, in, in for Syrians, you know, I gave a, secure, a security class for a Syrian archeologist. I said, you know, how are you going to the sites? To, to make a damage assessment. I said, well, you know, we, you know, pick out the, the you know, we go into the car or pick up uh, the, the, motors, the motorbike and uh, go in. He said, you cannot do that. It's a danger zone. How am I, who am I to tell you that it is a danger zone? <laughs> so I told them, you know, always go by two persons, uh, check out the route, check out uh, what kind of militias are underway. Uh, and perhaps avoid them in checking out another route. Uh, have somebody constantly on the phone in uh, in the main office, if they have an office at least, and uh, phone in every 15 to 30 minutes. And then uh, if, there are, if the site, if there's military presence on the site or around it and you feel uh, in danger, you know, get out. And they were laughing and they said, well, we never thought about it that way. But this is all practice. And uh, it was funny actually to tell the Syrian archaeologist <laughs> that they were busy much too, <laughs> you know, much too dangerous and not, men, uh, not minding their own security and me telling them that they should. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, thinking of that um, experience of my work in Baghdad, in hindsight, uh, it was an important point in my life, both personally and professionally. Um, to work in a conflict zone is an experience, uh, uh, like I said earlier, which, which will never leave you. But it makes you a little bit closer or it gives you a, a little bit insight into the suffering and the, the, the mechanisms uh, of uh, people living uh, in, in a warm conflict, in a, in a violent conflict and uh, what the possibilities are of uh, protecting heritage uh, during an, uh, a violent conflict. And um, another, this, yeah, so, so working on Syria now uh, with Heritage for Peace uh, since, I don't know, eight years, uh, yet in other countries again. Um, that, that actually came about because uh, I went there as a military. So afterwards, there was a lot of discussion whether, you, whether I should have done that. Uh, to be uh, what I called in, in, in one article, uh, to be an uh, embedded archaeologist. Um, and I came up with that term because of embedded journalism. Uh, we had a lot of discussion, especially with the World Archaeological uh, Congress in Dublin. Uh, I was attacked in public and private. Uh, um, then I started reflecting uh, on that experience uh, um, and uh, is this the only way uh, to support uh, uh, our colleagues uh, who are living in a conflict and try to protect their own heritage? Meaning the only way being through the military. And then I came up with, well, the answer, well, no, it is not. Uh, you've seen a lot of uh, humanitarian aid workers there. You see civil servants. Uh, and uh, those are the, the most positive ones, actually. There are, of course, a, a lot of crooks and, and, and crooked NGOs uh, working in conflict zones, too. Uh, so you have to uh, watch out there. Then I thought uh, at the World Archaeological Congress in Jordan, and uh, uh, I met this uh, young Syrian guy, and uh, a PhD student uh, or an MA student in archaeology living in uh, Barcelona. And he came up with the idea, you know, what can we do with, you know, what can we do for our colleagues in uh, Syria? So at that point, uh, uh, just a few months later, we came together in Barcelona where he lives. And uh, we said that there are other ways of uh, supporting our colleagues. And uh, we started our NGO, uh, Heritage for Peace. Um, very idealistic in the beginning, of course. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it wasn't easy to start. We didn't have any money, but uh, we paid everything ourselves in the beginning. Uh, first of all, the point was um, to, to uh, after my experience, uh, and also looking more closer to the hum humanitarian emergency aid in conflict zones, um, they have their standards uh, put down in the handbook of the Sphere Project. Uh, they have the code of conduct, and we put them, and we copied that actually into the statues of uh, heritage for peace. And also, the idea came that uh, if you start working uh, during a conflict, uh, as as you know, people from an NGO, is there anything else we can do? 
the idea came that if we started supporting the people, asking them questions, what do you need, what do you want? Meanwhile, the people approach us and we don't really have to go out. So the people from Tigray and Myanmar, they come to us for, for help. And um, um, the idea was to bring the different groups together because in the end, uh, uh, the best protection of cultural heritage in a conflict zone is ending the conflict, which is peace. Because, you know, that's the ultimate solution. Uh, so to strive for peace also as heritage workers and uh, also as humanitarian workers uh, uh, just makes, makes sense. It's only logical. And we did it. Uh, we started it. Uh, for example, we worked for the opposition groups in Syria. We worked uh, with the government in Syria, that is the, the, the DGIM, uh, the Director General of Antiquities and Monuments. Uh, uh, we put them together in a room during a conference in Spain. So we left the room and said, start talking. Uh, we put, uh, we drew up, uh, um, we drew up a, a sort of a kind of a charter in the sense of UNESCO for the peace talks in Geneva, uh, for for the opposition groups. Uh, the, uh, that was uh, the, the the peace talks uh, uh, between the different groups uh, in Syria that came together in uh, Geneva. We did the same thing for Libya. So, but there are different levels. You know, now we work on different levels. Just to be uh, uh, on the site, like the projects we have in Iraqa now, uh, which is uh, track one, but there was also track two and track three. And we uh, work on all levels now. So in this, that is actually all I learned uh, uh, from, from my experiences in Iraq and later a little bit uh, from my experience working in conflict in Afghanistan. First of all, is, is because of my personal experience, I uh, have compassion and empathy uh, with the people uh, uh, suffering uh, uh, during a conflict. Um, don't see them as, as victims, which, which is actually, if you consider them as victims, uh, you silence them. Uh, uh, but they're very active piece, uh, uh, people, and actually the first responders. If you look at all conflicts, who are the, the, the first people who protect their heritage? They're the people uh, uh, in the surroundings, the, the people uh, in situ. The first people who started uh, protecting their uh, heritage sites during the Lotus Revolution were uh, the local population around the archaeological sites in, um, uh, in Egypt. So uh, they're not silent victims. Uh, uh, so you can activate them uh, and try to search and contact, etc. And then, um, second of all, is well the most important, uh, but it's a big discussion now in, in how to how to put that in humanitarian actions now, emergency programs is um, they give the people on the ground more power. Uh, so you know, don't go there uh, with a suitcase full of ideas and say, well, you should do this or you should do that. Uh, you know, if people approach us, we said, what do you want? Uh, and we try to figure out how we can help you uh, and support you. And sometimes you cannot. Then you say, uh, 
you know, you have to be transparent and open and, and very, uh, very honest. Because trust, which is a main uh, quality in, 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 in uh, especially in conflict zones, uh, as we say in Dutch, uh, com uh, trust comes by uh, the horse and uh, no, it comes by uh, piecemeal, you know, step for step, and it goes by horse, it goes very quickly. Uh, so trust, trust is uh, very important. And the only thing to be trustworthy is to be transparent and open. And I experienced those kind of things. You know, if I wouldn't have been open and honest with the minister, I wouldn't have gotten that far in Iraq. And, you know, certain things you couldn't do. I, I told you the story about uh, the EU project and the books. Uh, he didn't want it the way, uh, according to the rules of the EU, halas finished. So, yeah, I learned a lot and I used it. Uh, in uh, the rest of uh, my work uh, today. And, and, I, and that's important for you because it means that you continue to engage with archaeologists and with people working in heritage. You know, after this experience in uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, it's continuing engagement. That's important yeah. for you. Yeah, that's what keeps me alive, literally and uh, figuratively now. Uh, yes, I think I can contribute uh, something. Uh, now, in, uh, during the pandemic, it is uh, difficult uh, to travel. And actually, you invite me to go to Iraq, uh, uh, which I would have loved to, to do that. But uh, especially now during the pandemic, it is uh, next to impossible. Uh, but I would have, you know, gone to, to other places, certainly to meet people uh, from the, Syri the Syrians, uh, at least in in uh, in Turkey, etc. Uh, yes, the importance, I think, in my work, in our work, is you have to be there on the spot, to talk to the people, to ask for their needs, to ask what they want, and if that is possible or not, uh, to picture them from my side at least uh, a clear. Um, a clear situation, what you can offer and what you cannot offer. This, this is, for example, what we do now in uh, Myanmar. It's first to find out what the situation is, what the people want from us, what they need, and then see how we can support them or not. And you have to give it, to, to be transparent, you have to give them a clear picture. We cannot do this for you, we cannot do that for you, uh, but we can do this, but there is always the risk, etc., etc. And it's definitely not always money. Certainly not. People uh, think it's always about money. It's not. Get the people in the Middle East, uh, help them to organize themselves, either at the regional uh, level or a national level. Uh, try to support uh, the formation of uh, unions for conservators, for museum uh, uh, staff, uh, for library staff within Iraq, for example. It has been very difficult so far. Try to convince people at the top or whatever, or support them from button up uh, to get them, uh, you know, to, to get organized and share, which is very important because, in my view, the Middle East has been, uh, and our colleagues in, in the Middle East have been very much uh, underestimated uh, by the post colonial uh, Western world. 
the problem is that they are the main funding agencies and many, many projects are post-colonial. Uh, they don't trust the people, they don't trust the, the, our colleagues in the Middle East. And also, I think that the people in the, in the Middle East, our colleagues, are underestimating themselves. Uh, you know, my first question was, one, somebody in the group asked us, uh, the, our colleagues in uh, Myanmar, do you need any training? This is post-colonial. That is a wrong question. Because if you ask somebody if they need training, then you, then you suppose that people do need training and that they are not well trained. So this is, this is uh, you know, these, these, these things. Uh, uh, and it's, it's not respectful either. And I think that uh, the, the people in the, uh, our colleagues in the Middle East definitely underestimate themselves. There's a very good conservation lab in Tehran, for example, but that, of course, is political difficult. Uh, uh, especially Iraq was the, uh, the main port for uh, cultural heritage uh, in the Middle East up until uh, uh, years ago. Uh, ECOMOS had their office, ECOM had their office, UNESCO had their office. Nothing has become of it. It's all gone, gone to the docks. Uh, but the people are strong and they should not be underestimated. And of course, if they think that their education system uh, lacked uh, uh, or was lacking in the past, which it was in the 90s and the 80s, the libraries were neglected, the museums were neglected, it was difficult to get contact abroad. And uh, actually another thing that I did was to support uh, uh, the DG, the general director of Inland to uh, connect to the outside world and actually, uh, we went to uh, Paris and I introduced him to, or well, he was introduced to the uh, uh, National Library in Paris. Uh, we introduced him to UNESCO, to ECOMOS and to ECOM. Uh, that is another thing that we can facilitate, connections uh, between the countries uh, and the international community. And uh, it's not me who should really call UNESCO and tell them, uh, you know, you have to go to Iraq and the people are suffering, blah, 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 blah. It is facilitating the connection. It's facilitating the context between the people on the ground, their own organizations and the international heritage community. Uh, so that, that I think is important. But one point is people underestimate themselves and they definitely should try, in spite of all the different, the differences they have, ethnic, religious, or otherwise, uh, uh, have to work together because cultural heritage is a concern for all the people in the country. And they should uh, step over their own shadows, get organized. Tamam. On that note, Rennie, thank you for taking the time to speak with me and speak about your experiences and recent history working in Iraq. Um, and of course, the weight of that in terms of the stress and the reflection, I think all those things were, have been quite important when it comes to um, looking back, you know, at what is now 18 years since the Iraq war. Um, so thank you uh, again, and I wish you the best of luck um, 
And um, I hope to hear from you very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Shukran. Shukran.